Everybody. Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. I'm Eric Mann. I haven't seen you in a month because there's been just a long fun drive. And Christine Blasdale took my spot because she's a great fundraiser. I would buy anything from Christine Blasdale. I just would. So the station really needs the money. So it doesn't mean that we don't... Uh, also do good fun drive shows, but it's great to be back. It's really great to be back. And I'd like to introduce somebody uh, you may remember named Channing Martinez. Hey, everyone. Sorry, I haven't been here in almost three months. <laughs> so yeah. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> hey, Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Uh, I know a lot of people thought Channing was either in a witness protection program or had been kidnapped by the right wing. But he, in fact, he was running for city council in the 10th district where he did great. And we're going to talk about his campaign. No, he's not the next city council person. But watch out. We're on the on the rise. So he's not kidnapped just because of the FCC rules. Channing could not be on the show because allegedly that would be um, campaigning. Unlike Mike Bloomberg, who can just do whatever the hell he wants and and campaign 18 hours a day. But, 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 the main point is we're in very good spirits. We're back. And let me tell you about today's show. We have more show than uh, time to do it. The first thing is, I'm going to try to get the listeners to, to start emailing me because I've been getting, so that's what the show is about. It's called Eric at Voices from the Frontlines.com. I'll, I'll start reading a review of this very fine film called uh, Sorry We Missed You, which is about, the, that's the tag that FedEx or Amazon leaves if you're not there, about a man who gets thrown into the home delivery industry, only to find out it's crazy, crazy how hard they drive them and how, you know, almost out of their minds these drivers are getting. It's a great show and a great movie by the, the great filmmaker Ken Loach from England and Paul Lafferty, who's a terrific writer. So I'm going to be reading some part of my review of uh, Sorry We Missed You. 
Then I'm also going to read you four letters I got from around the world around the film because I write for Counterpunch. And in my film review, which I'm going to read you, I got some amazing letters, which raises you, my dear listener. Why am I not getting more letters for you? Uh, the station wants to know the impact. And, and I've been having a conversation with the station to say that I know it wants to raise listenership. I agree with that. I want a lot of people to listen to voices, and, and you're one of them because you're listening. But our greatest goal, because we don't need commercials, is impact. And the impact is measured in two ways. One, not just that you're listening, but from our point of view, are you there? So when you call in, you're very, very good. We get lots of great callers, but we don't get a lot of great writers, which means I have no physical proof that you're out there. And we need that. The station has every right to say, who's out there? Who's listening to your show? That's a totally legitimate question. And I can't say, oh, I met six people at the Bernie uh, rally who just out of nowhere said they love the show. Every time I go into the black community and I say, which is where I work, and I say, I'm Eric Mann, they say, well, I recognize that voice. Oh, my God, you're the guy on the radio. So we know you're out there. And we know that we have, the, I think, the best listeners in the city. But do you hear me? Eric at Voices from the Frontlines. One, uh, a letter that says you listen to uh, Voices, you're regular or you occasionally listen, uh, you think the show is important, you want it to get a very strong position in where it is in KPFK, like Tuesday at 3 is fine, you get it. So, Eric, at Voices from the Frontlines, prove to us you're out there. The station wants to know, and we want to know. Just like Channing, uh, on Election Day, he got a very clear understanding of who wanted him and who didn't. And, that's absolutely right. And that's what life is, okay? So we need the letters. I'm going to read you some. If somebody can write me letters, two people from England, about a film I reviewed, uh, you all could please send letters, including things you want on the show, things you didn't like about the program. It doesn't matter. Prove you're alive and well. Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. Okay. Uh, now, I'm going to go into this review, and we do have the trailer, thanks to Ricky Herrera, who's a great board operator. And So here's the trailer for the show, and I'm going to start reading my review of it. You name it, I've done it. Concreting, plumbing. Is that you two? We've done it all. So why'd you give it up? It's just gone from job to job. There's always someone on your back, isn't there? Come on, we've got time to make up, let's go. I'd rather work on my own now and be my own boss. Let's just get a few things straight at the start, though, shall we? Wake up. Dad will go mental if you miss school again. Now, if you don't move, then we're going to get a ticket. Oh, Rosie. You're fucking about laugh. You don't work for us, you work with us. So you're out of contract, I get paid for the visits. Keep this happy. Scully, Scully. Ah, yes. We track every parcel, don't we? To the front door and the back door. Even if you put one in the garden shed, they know where it lands. Fucking hell! The dog's out there with massive teeth. I think it stuck a chunk out of my ass. This decides who lives and who dies. You were stolen. Mm, it wasn't me, it was your mum. 
Service for Mr. Campbell. Uh, Robert, not. Keeps on parking in my parking space. They don't get paid till they get delivered. It's my night with my family. It's a no. I'm not doing it. I'm still with some problems with my teenage son. Have you been on the train tracks and the roofs? This two days in a row. Just knuckle down. This is another hundred pound fine and a sanction. Otherwise, you're just going to end up like. Well, oh, thank you. Know. I never thought it'd be this difficult. I just want things to go back to normal. You do more for me than you'll ever know. You've got the best thing in life here. You've got a family that care about you. <laughs> How does your company get away with this? This is my family. Thanks for the great day. And I'm telling you now, nobody messes with my family. <laughs> Master of your own destiny, Ricky. You up for that? Yeah. This is where it's at. Vindaloo. Got to be hard to take this stuff, do you know what I mean, son? All right, then. Now. <laughs> 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 the language, you know, they, they do speak the, their own English, and uh, the language is clearer on the screen. And, so, and I believe they even have subtitles because can't guarantee that. But Ken Loach is always working to get the different languages to people speak the way they speak. And as a result, he has subtitles even for English speaking audiences, I think, but at least the one that they sent me. Now, obviously, I'm a big fan of this film, so I'm going to tell you a little bit of frame of the human frame of the film, and then I'm going to get to the film. And things I've learned about myself in the process in particular of doing the two last reviews, one of Parasite and one of, of now uh, Sorry We Missed You, which is I've been starting to live inside the films. The film is no longer something I'm reviewing. I'm in that film. I realize it takes me three days to do a film review. I get these trailers, uh, not these trailers, these Vimeo versions of the film. I watch it on a computer. I learned that I don't, uh, Parasite Leanne and I saw uh, together, and then I went back to, to try to see it. The point is, I watch the film and I stop it because every scene is so great, I write something down, I write a point down, then I run it again, and I write another point down, and I run it again, and then by the time I'm finished, so it takes me three hours, four hours, to watch the film the first time, I have all these notes, and those notes become not a film review, I wanna say that, I'm doing something different, I, um, it's a film conversation, which is, I'm a very politically developed person, I'm a pro-communist, anti-imperialist, pan-Africanist, third-worldist, revolutionary. That's sort of who I am. So I watch the film through that lens. Is it going to be helpful to our movement or hurtful to our movement? Now, I generally don't watch films about white working-class people, Not, but I do. I mean, this is different. Anybody who's writing a film about anything, I'm interested in seeing it. But this is sensational, and, I, and you got to go on Wikipedia to see who Ken Loach is because he's 83, so he's older than me. He's at the top of his game, as am I, and this is his latest film. I hope the guy lives to 105 because he just keeps knocking out great films. But then the other human element is my friends Emily Russo and Nancy Gersman, who are now the co 
directors of zeitgeist films. Now, Emily and I go back to 1984, where we met in a film. Uh, I was in a film called Tiger by the Tail, and it was in the New York Film Festival, and I spent a week there because I was going to get this award. I met this young woman named Emily Russo. She told me she's had some ideas about starting her own distribution company. I said I had some ideas about starting a thing called the Strategy Center. Neither existed. And then about three or four years later, she said, Eric, I started this thing called Zeitgeist. And I said, hey, Emily, I started this thing called Strategy Center. So we've been friends ever since. She sends me stuff back and forth. Nancy's our partner. And a lot of times she sends me films, and I say it's not a good match. It's just not. And this one, oh, my God, yes. Got to see, you know, this is a perfect match. So the first thing to know is uh, Ken Loach did, uh, and I don't have the type feel very bad. He, he did a great film, lots of films about the IRA. Did a film about the Spanish Civil War that was magnificent, and I should have had it in my credits. Okay, so there's Ken Loach. There's Paul Lafferty, who was the writer. There's Zeitgeist Films. There's the working class. So let me start reading my review. Ken Loach's latest film, Sorry We Missed You, the sign that FedEx and Amazon delivery people leave when you're not home, brilliantly captures the dehumanizing mania of late capitalism, which the bosses, the workers, and the consumers are all entangled in a malignant matrix. Written by Paul Lafferty with compelling dialogue and character development and distributed by Zeitgeist Films, Sorry You Missed You is a powerful exposure of two interrelated evils, capitalism's fraudulent reclassification of its workers as independent contractors and its organization of millions of frenzied worker bees driving all over the cities in their own cars and vans delivering pizza and packages to a hungry public. This madness reached scale decades ago with Domino Pizza promising delivery in 30 minutes or less, even if its drivers had to kill pedestrians en route, which they did, by the way. Now, this murderous mania is on steroids, shaped by Jeff Bezos' Amazon selling Prime memberships that promise two-day delivery, now one-day delivery, same-day delivery by drone, and soon one-hour delivery. <laughs> by drone. By drone, right, right, right from the factory to the drone. Exactly, no people needed. Now, driving this madness full circle, just the other day, Domino's is now offering its customers GPS tracking of their pizza. So the, cons the consumer can become another tyrannical boss over the working class. Where's my pizza? Sorry We Missed You portrays the life of a working-class family as heartbreaking and terrifying. In the first, and one of the things you'll see, because I, I won't probably finish the whole review, is uh, this is an amazing film about the working-class family, the gender dynamics, the children dynamics. But this is, this is a family that deeply loves each other. And it's hanging by a thread economically and socially and mentally because of what capitalism is doing to it. So it's deeply moving, and I'm going to go see it again. It's playing. It's last day today is at the New Art, but it's moving to, I double-check it, Ricky, Lumiere Music Hall, I believe, in Beverly Hills. The, it used to be, I think, the Lemley Music Hall, and it's now the Lumiere 
music hall. That starts, I got to think, Friday night. I think it's playing until Thursday at the New Art, and then Friday it starts, it moves over. In the first scene, as the dialogue begins off camera, Maloney, Ross Brewer, the company manager, is grooming Ricky, Chris Hitchin, who's seeking employment with his delivery firm. Ricky explains that he's done every job under the sun. I've done it all, but there's always someone on my back. I'd rather be my own boss. Parenthesis. When workers start talking about being their own boss, they're saying they don't want to be in the working class. Maloney asked if he's ever been on the dole. British government income support for laid-off workers. Ricky says, no, I've got my pride. I'd rather starve. Ricky, having proven his contempt for the limited social programs that the working class has fought for, is prime subject for the brave new world of labor management relations. Now, Maloney, who's played just great uh, by Ross Brewer as the bad, big, big, tall white guy with bald muscles. He's the, you know, he's the tyrannical head of all these workers that are running around jumping into trucks. So Maloney uh, uh, explains the rules. You don't get hired here. You come on board. We like to call it onboarding. You don't work for us. You work with us. You don't drive for us. You perform services. There's no employment contracts. There's no wages, but fees. No clocking on. You become available, master of your own destiny. So it sorts out the effing losers from the warriors, right, Ricky? Ricky is thrilled to be a warrior. Now, Ricky is told he has to have his own truck to do the job. But how's he going to get a truck? Who will pay for the gas or the insurance? Ricky, the boss, of course, because now you're your own boss, <laughs> right? Ricky's thrilled. Is Ricky's in his late 30s or early 40s and already looks exhausted before he begins. As soon as he come home with the great news, the fundamental contradictions of patriarchy, male chauvinism, and the unbearable burdens of the working-class nuclear family become instantly apparent. He needs a van for his new job, or rather his new onboarding. But where can he get the down payment? He asks, then begs, then argues that his wife, Abby, played by Debbie Honeywood. Apparently, this is her breakthrough. New, she's terrific, terrific, who plays uh, the wife, the mother. And as you'll see, a working-class person herself. Debbie Honeywood is the actress. Abby is the name. But how can he... Uh, he asks and begs and argues that his wife, Abby, must sell her car. But she has her own job as a traveling health worker, helping elderly patients one apartment at a time all over the city. And yes, she is a saint, as many of them are. She needs that car to do her job. She begs him not to ask, but he has to. In the classic structure of the nuclear family, despite grave misgivings and personal pain, she agrees to sell her car to prop up her husband's desperate need to be the primary breadwinner, even though she's the one with the steady job. She warns him, but we'll never see each other. You work 12 hours a day, six days a week. You won't see the kids or me. Yes, he answers, but in a year we can have a franchise. His wise cracking, but also wise teenage son says, he says, yeah, like, like a McDonald's it's going to be. You're going to get it like a McDonald's. He says, oh, great, Dad, a McDonald's. 
No smartass dad replies, he's already a successful entrepreneur. It is not yet ready purchased white van. In just the first few minutes, we see a tragedy unfolding. Ricky shows up for his first day of work armed with his new van. He's given the two things he needs for success. His own scanner, the company calls it a preciser. So he has to deliver all the packages precisely inside a one-hour slot and a plastic bottle that, as trainer explains, is your most important tool. When Ricky asks, what's that for? The trainer explains, so you don't have to stop to go to the bathroom. You just urinate in the bottle. After all, time is money. Roach and Lafferty show the story from the perspective of Ricky the father, Abby the mother and the wife, Zeb the teenage son, and Liza Jane, Katie Proctor, the teenage daughter. Abby's character is complexly drawn as the caring home care worker. Through her eyes, the woman's eyes, we see the lives of elderly working people facing memory loss and the terror of debilitating capacity and loneliness. We see the brutal speed up of public sector workers as Abby has to work so many hours that she has to use a cell phone to call her children to explain the food she left for them, encouraging them to do their homework. Heartbroken, she can't help them as she tends to her patients that the social service agencies call clients. So we got now all this new terminology. They're not your patients, they're your clients. They're, you know, you don't have a job, you're onboarding. No wages, you're your own boss. And what's great about it is he shows the speed up of the public sector and the speed up of the private sector. The system is falling apart at the seams. And it's not just that the family is home and Ricky's going crazy, but now both people are going crazy, although Abby is doing a much better job of understanding who she is. The film grossly exposes underfunded agencies trying to serve a declining and terrified working class staffed by harried, hassled, and exhausted public servants. So while Ricky is running all over the city in his van at breakneck speed, Abby is moving from patient to patient on public transportation, using each bus stop as her office as she's sitting on a bus stop with her cell phone, as she tries to make sense out of her own life. As Ricky makes his rounds, he begs and threatens and almost assaults a customer into finally signing for his package. But without that signature, he will not get paid. In a poignant scene, Ricky takes Liza Jane with him, his daughter, to work. And she's such a great help since it's a two-person job. She's thrilled to help her dad. There's a deep connection between father and daughter, and for a fleeting moment, we hope this is the one answer to the many unanswerable questions the film raises. But the next day, Ricky comes to work and is told by Maloney that because of one customer's complaint, the daughter can't accompany him any longer. But why, Ricky? Protests. It's my van, my insurance, my daughter. Yes, Maloney replies, but it's our plant franchise. Nobody Fs with the clients. Now, how many profoundly painful when the autography just makes up the rules that goes along and tells you, yes, you're your own boss, but I'm the boss of the bosses. It's things like this that drive people crazy and you want to kill your foreman. But you know you lose your job, and if you're black, you'll probably lose your life. And yet we can see crazy is where Ricky is being driven. Now, here's a cool thing. I originally sent this out on Counterpunch, and I want to really thank uh, Jeffrey St. Clair, my editor, who's just wonderful to me, 
and always publishes everything I, you know, if you're a regular contributor to Counterpunch, they believe in you and they print everything you send. So it's not called Films from the Front Lines. You can check it out on Amazon. My, uh, I'm sorry, on Counterpunch. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get Amazon in my brain in a minute. You can check it out on Counterpunch, uh, counterpunch.org. But now, because it, uh, my, if you bear with me, my film reviews end with the author would welcome comments at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Get it, listeners? I get these great emails. So I got an email from a guy in, in England, which they call the UK, too, in fact. It was so important that I integrated it into the review, and then we published it again in Hollywood Progressive, which you can check out by going on Hollywood Progressive online. And they, Dick Price did an amazing layout, an amazing, he got about 10 pictures from, you know, I don't know where he gets all these photos from. He's also got a really wonderful picture of the uh, filmmaker Ken Loach. So read L.A. Progressive, read Hollywood Progressive, because uh, Sharon Kyle and Dick Price put it out. It's amazing. It comes out every day, seven days a week, I think. And it's amazing. So, all right. So now we're back to England. You get where I'm going? I get this email from Chris Miller, who I'm going to tell you about in a minute, too. And I say, so yet, in what reader Chris Miller from the UK called the turning point of the film, Ricky sells out one of his fellow workers to seek personal gain. I'm going to let Chris explain it. Quote, the central issue of the film is solidarity, and it's the lack of any such that makes the central character, Ricky, essentially unlikable. Fairly early in the film, Ricky is offered a round, a term well understood in the UK, that another driver finds too difficult. The other driver is upset and angry and challenges the boss. Ricky is doing okay at that point, but he's greedy, hungry, take your pick, and does not hesitate to take on the extra load, fatally undermining the other driver's case. I would suggest that this is the turning point of the movie. I agree. I totally agree. And I lost it. I started it in the beginning in my original review. So I started my beginning of the review about when he turns down, no, I would never be on the dole because I don't, you know, I'd rather starve. Mm -hmm. But now he screws another worker. And in another story I'll tell you sometime called Leanne Hurst Mann takes it in the hole, when we were auto workers, taking the hole meant that if they put too much work on you, you just let the car keep going. And that would screw up the next person's job and the next person's job. But the, everybody supported that because it's not because you're a bad worker. It's because they put too much work on the, on, the, on the job. So if Leanne took that work, that would set a standard because she was very, very good. And then the next worker would say, why the hell did you agree to that? And she says, because I could get fired. But Leanne didn't do that. She refused to do the job and became a cause celebrity in the, a plant of 2,000 work, workers on that shift, um, about 95% of whom were men, who saw Leanne as one of the great working class heroes at the time. And we won that fight, and she won that fight. So the point is, in this movie, Ricky is supposed to say, what are you talking about? If he can't do the job, I can't do the job. I'm working as hard as I can. He's working as hard as I can. Hire another person. 
You might both be fired, but that's what you're supposed to say. Instead, he says, I can do it, at which point they basically fire the other guy by giving him the worst and worst and worst jobs until he finally quits. Oh, wow. So, to Chris Miller, thank you for the review that even further improved my own review and my own understanding of what I was writing. Get it? Eric at Voices from the Frontlines. I expect to get at least 10 or 15 terrific emails when I get back to this thing called email. All right. There's so many things I'm not, you know, this is a long essay, okay? So I'm not going to read everything, but I'm going to end with two things I do want to read. Um, this, Ricky finally, after totally falling apart, as says, as Ricky's life unravels, the filmmakers expose that at least some of his torment is of his own making as he agreed to be a rate buster for personal gain instead of supporting the stand-up worker who was resisting. Now he's intensified the very catastrophe on himself and his family. As his family is disintegrating under the pressure, Ricky comes hat in hand to ask Maloney for a week off. Maloney categorically refuses and explains the brutal truth of how the system works. When you see the film at the New Art or at the uh, Music Hall, which you're going to do, right, to support Zeitgeist and support Ken Loach, this is one of the great monologues in film history. I mean it. So this is what Maloney says. Look, at every point, every family is going to have a problem. I am nasty bastard number one but I'm greatly misunderstood. All the rage, the complaints, the anger, the hate, I soak them up. I use it as fuel. And with that energy, I create a protective shield around this depot that has the best performing figures. You know why I'm number one? Have any of these customers genuinely asked you how you are? They couldn't give a damn if you fall asleep at the wheel and go head on into a bus. All they care about is price, delivery, and the item in their hand. Now, all of this gets fed back into this black box, the computer that details every transaction, time, and profit. That block is in competition with all the other black boxes all over the country. That's what determines the contracts. The box decides who lives and who dies. I want Apple, Samsung, Amazon, and Zara for my drivers and your families. What he means is, I want Amazon to subcontract with us. You get it? I want Samsung to contract with us. Why would you subcontract with us? Because we're the fastest. We're the fastest. We're the fastest. We're the fastest. That's all it is, right? So, all they care about is price delivery and the item in the hand. That means you and me. Now, this place may look like a pigsty, but the depot is a gold mine. The shareholders should erect a statue to me, Maloney patron saint of nasty bastards. You want a day off? It'll cost you 100 pounds a go. Now, Maloney's soliloquy about the brutal truth of capitalism reminds me of another of the great political monologues in film history, that of Colonel Philippe Mathieu, the murderous leader of the French counterinsurgency in Gilles Pontecarvo's Battle of Algiers. Now, at a press conference in Algeria, now we're in a different film now, you get it? We're in Algeria against, it's called the Battle of Algiers. These are the Algerians rising up against the French occupation. The greatest film in the history of the world, the Battle of Algiers, on question number one. 
on question number two, three, four. Seriously. So, at a press conference in Algeria, Matthew confronts the hypocrisy of the liberal French press who support colonialism but question the use of torture and terror against civilian populations. This is what he says. Is it legal to set off bombs in public places? No, gentlemen, believe me. It's a vicious circle. Now, we could talk for hours to no avail because that is not the problem. The problem is this. The Front de Liberation Nationale wants to throw us out of Algeria, and we want to stay. This is a war. Do you want the French to leave Algeria? If you do, fine. But if you don't, don't judge me for the methods I use to meet our common objectives. We're here for that reason alone. We are neither madmen nor sadists. Those who call us fascists forget that role that many of us played in the resistance. Those who call us Nazis don't know that some of us survived Dachau and Buchenwald. We are soldiers. Our duty is to win. Therefore, to be precise, it is my turn to ask a question, says Colonel Matthew. Should France stay in Algeria? If your answer is still yes, then you must accept all the consequences. In Sorry We Missed You and the Battle of Algiers, the brutal honesty and logic of those in charge of the system challenges the audience to ask if they're complicit in the abuses they claim to find appalling. For aren't we the ones who want our products on time, if not earlier, who complain to customer service if our same delivery is next day or even late at night? Aren't we the ones, like me, who ask Amazon Prime to give us free shipping on a box of tea bags and then order a box of shoelaces three hours later? without even combining the orders and giving a damn about the ecological crimes in this new life-in-a-package-at-our-front-door culture. When the bastard-in-chief tells Ricky that the effing customers just want their package and don't give a damn if you crash your truck into a bus, are you, my gentle reader, and all of us, among the very a-holes they're ridiculing? Now, what I'm getting to at the end of the film is that what he does there is you have a way of thinking, when I listen to some of the Bernie people, as, as opposed to Bernie, who just think everything is so simple, down with the billionaires, down with this, down with that. When the billionaires explain how the system works, a lot of times they can't figure out a good answer to it because the system has a logic. So in Ken Loach's film, there is a logic to all this, almost an inevitable logic if we don't stop it. People want packages. It costs a lot of money to give free shipping. In order to give free shipping, you have to make it up in the cost of the package. Then you're paying a whole bunch of people to deliver it to you fast, fast, fast. You got to get them to pay for the gas. You got to get them to get their own vans. And if you don't like it, that means that we have to have, one, a union of Amazon workers, two, national support for a slowdown instead of a speed up, restrictions on how many packages a person can do in a month, in a week, in a year, inspectors from OSHA, which we used to have about the health and safety, but your problem is, see, he's not a worker. He's an independent contractor. So he's not eligible under OSHA because he's an independent Uber driver. So there's a whole fight going on about that. The main point is, Terrific film. 
terrific film, and I'm and I want to make sure we have time for Channing's amazing thing. But Channing, you have any thoughts on this? And I'm gonna. So the main point is, go see the film. Uh, one of the things I'm trying to do on voices, in terms of deciding, I mean, I'm always going to do the show. I threaten I'm not going to do it, but all seven of you would be very hurt. So I couldn't do that to you. <laughs> I couldn't do the seven the seven people who love me on the show. I would never let you down. But I am trying as an organizer to get a listenership that says, yes, Eric, I'll go see the film. I won't push for too many things. Yes, Eric, I will give money to Standing Rock. Yes, voices, Channing and Eric. If you have one ask a week, I'll do the ask because that's the whole point. So I think the film is not doing great in New York. As I said, it's opened a little soft, but it's got re- amazing reviews all over the country. So let's make L.A. Let, let's have both the New Art and the Lumiere uh, Music Hall have really good attendance, and you could be part of that. Okay, so check out the film. It's called Sorry We Missed You, and I'm going to get a comment from my friend Channing Martinez, and then Ricky will take a break, and then I'm going to introduce Channing about his uh, terrific city council race. So, I, I mean, the first thing is I feel like by reading your review, I have watched a lot of the film, but I do still need to go see the film. Um, I hope to do that this weekend. You know, the the main thing is, you know, what I was saying to you earlier, it's as if you're all of a sudden watching this film and you're watching the TV and then all of a sudden the camera points to you and you see yourself on screen and you're just like, wait a minute, wait, wait, I'm supposed to be watching a film. What do you mean, me? What do I think? Am I complicit in this? What do you mean? This is a film, right? It's breaking the whole, you know, uh, how do you call it, convention of, you know, the Hollywood-esque blockbuster film format where, you know, for it to be frank, you go into a theater, you feel good about the film you watch, and when you walk out, you're not at all involved. For the first five minutes after you've watched the film, you're like in awe and you're in this universe and you're living this universe, but without any real repercussions. And you get to be able to forget the film. But the great thing about your review and the great thing about this film is that it's not escapist. It takes you right back into reality. There is a fight you know, around SB50, around workers that are going on in the city and in the state. Um, and then, you know, if that's not even further, right, your view then says, are you not complicit? And then you have to, you know, when I was reading this story <laughs> earlier this morning, <laughs> yeah, I was joking to myself and saying, oh, the nerve of him. How dare you say me? <laughs> um, but, you know, reflecting on that, we all do it. We all order from Amazon. We're all ordering these, you know, different uh, food delivery services and they're all, you know, independent contractors. They're not, they're no longer employees. And so it is really a dismantling, number one, of the, a, lot of victory, a lot of the victories of the 1930s and 1940s right, and 1950s, right. right? And the unionism and the fact that, you know, where are the basic rights for employees? And if you're not an employee, then you're not entitled to those rights. That was, thanks a lot. And one last thought is that when we get to the discussion of Abby, uh, you know, I'm sorry that a lot of things lead to my wife, Leanne, but Leanne is working with a group called Hand in Hand, which are employers of domestic workers who are working hand in hand with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, 
because we're complicit there too. If you're lucky enough to have a person called a housekeeper or a domestic worker or gardener, uh, what are their rights? Well, right now they have no rights, but you can still, because you're the, you are have to take responsibility, you're an employer, are you the best employer? And they give you standards on how to be a good employer. They say this is how many, which wages you should pay. These are the benefits. And you look at them and there you go, mm, they're pretty expensive. Stupid oh, yeah. to think about, I'm just being honest. And you go, well, duh. That's what it means. That's what if you want to hire a person, that's what it should cost. And then you get into it, and then you could get very excited about it. So check out Hand in Hand, check out National Domestic Workers Alliance, because my main point is that there are efforts to take on these companies. And you see, this is not a film about a resistance movement, but this is a heartbreaking film that you got to see. So you'll be more sympathetic. Oh, I remember the point that the home care worker also working for the government, taking care of people alone, elderly people. That's another phenomenal piece of the film. Okay, I, I could go on for five more hours, but um, let's take a break because I want to get to Channing's uh, campaign. Flanders, you're listening to People Powered Radio, KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Support KPFK by texting the number 41444 and entering KPFK. Texting a pledge is a quick and easy way to support the station that supports you. KPFK, community radio for peace, justice, art, music, culture. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. This is just show Voices from the Frontlines on KPFK. I'm Eric Mann, the host. I'm in with the co-host and producer, Channing Martinez. The only thing I'll say is in the 10th district of Los Angeles, uh, which was once a virtually all-black district, the district is between Olympic and Stocker between I don't know Western and Robertson, which I got to know by heart. Uh, Mark Ridley Thomas, a very respected, uh, obviously elected official who was a county supervisor, ran in that district uh, for city council. Uh, Grace Yu, a highly respected civil rights lawyer, major figure in Koreatown, but throughout the city, ran in that election. Alda Vasquez, who's worked with the Department of Water of Power, as she said, the first Afro-Latina who's ever run for that office, was in the, in the race. Uh, Melvin Snell, who had been on the ballot in, in, uh, in 2016, also was in the race. But there was a new candidate called Channing Martinez, who ran for city council, uh, coming out of the Labor Community Strategy Center and Voices from the Frontlines, neither of which endorsed him, 
Neither Bush had anything to do with his campaign, but nonetheless sent our love to him. I'd like to talk to have Channing Martinez, who's now allowed to talk about his campaign because it was over for now. For now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm so glad to be back on Voices. That was a great film review in the last segment. If you have not... If you missed it and you're just tuning in, please make sure to go to voicesfromthefrontlines.com and listen to that uh, review again. Um, so, as you said, I ran for city council in one of the black, last black, the last three black concentrations in Los Angeles: the eighth district, the ninth district, and the tenth district. Um, and the tenth being the biggest of those districts. And, you know, in the 1970s, I think we were around 40, I'm sorry, excuse me, 70% of that district. Um, and now we are at a whopping, you know, 25% of the right. district, right? Um, black people, that is. So, no, the first thing is we wanted to run a campaign that was counter-hegemonic and to take on the establishment. And we wanted to have a program that people can both aspire to and you know, rightfully be very challenged by. Um, and, you know, to some extent, sometimes even like, I don't know how you're going to do that. Um, and, you know, however their response is. But nonetheless, they understand the campaign, no matter what, right? Um, so I'm going to read a little paragraph that you wrote, because Eric wrote a really awesome article in the LA Progressive about the campaign. There are other articles as well, um, but I like this quote that you wrote. It says here, A central theme in this campaign is to protect and expand LA's black population from a genocidal gentrification that has already driven blacks out of the job market, imposed mass imprisonment and occupation, and driven low-income people out of the district and LA in total. Um, so we had, you know, three or four main demands um, that basically centered around those things, right? So uh, cut the LAPD budget by 50%, affirmative action for black jobs and having a ratio of black hire for 50% of all new employment in the city, free public transportation, and 50% of all new developments, and sometimes even retroactive, all new developments for low-income housing. And, you know, the main thing is that, you know, we're the first campaign in a very, very long time that's ran for this district or any district for that matter and spoke directly to the black community and spoke directly for the black community and did not just assume their vote. That's um, and so we spent a lot of time at Albertsons. We spent a lot of time going door to door. Um, and, you know, we've... Uh, how do you say it? We, we, you know, we did more than anyone think that, thought that we could do. Um, the first thing is we submitted 700 signatures, 706 signatures, and got onto the ballot. Um, not through actually paying any services, but going out even during the heaviest rain of the year, <laughs> um, during right. Thanksgiving, right. with a tent in front of Albertson, standing there for eight hours yep. collecting signatures. Yep. Um, and there's some really good, you know, the, the, the spoiler alert is that I am not the next city councilman, <laughs> um, not yet at least. Um, but we did get 1,583 votes or roughly 4.75% of the actual vote, 
which is great. Um, and me and Eric keep joking because there was a time when we first checked the actual numbers on the election day. It said 500. And, you know, we both said, oh, we're never doing this crap again. <laughs> <laughs> Not for 500 votes. Do you know how much work we put in? <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm very excited. That means five, 1,583 people voted for me and said that we believe in this vision and we know that this is a long-term vision and whether you win or not, you know, because mainly a lot of people vote, are you going to win or I'm going to vote for you. So if they know that you're not going to win in this election, but eventually they want to see that vision voted That's into right. power, it really is a vote of confidence in saying no matter what these people say, because you, you know, vote for someone who's going to win, but they're going to win and do what? Are they going to win and continue the homelessness crisis? Are, gonna, are they going to win and talk about, you know, just protocols of building, you know, uh, affordable housing and then shoot it down because of the protocol? Are they going to win and only represent people that are not black, not Latino, not working class, not super poor? Or do you want to really vote for someone who's going to actually stand for all of your values? Um, and that's the campaign we got. We had 14 volunteers. We got more than 50 donations from 10 states including California, of course. And then we did, <laughs> thank you. And uh, we did participate in six debates and those debates were really awesome. Wow, great report. I mean, obviously we like each other, that's not a secret. And we admire each other's work. We only have about three minutes, right? Again, we got three, four. So back to you, I wanna say, but a couple of thoughts. Um, I think you could even hear in his voice, this is a new person who came back, that's Jenny, still Jenny Martinez, but a very fundamentally different person because he agreed to do this. We had the vision and we didn't have a candidate. And then we realized we did have a candidate, but it was Channing, and Channing is not uh, one of his greatest uh, properties or whatever you call it, attributes, is he doesn't have a careerist bone in his body. At, at his face was all over everything. We has a, it's a beautiful face. I wore that T-shirt day and night. My wife, Leanne, wore it. My daughter, Melinda, wore it. We wore that T-shirt. And we were walking billboards, and it's a factor in running. Because one, one thing I just realized is that in that we were focusing on the black part of L.A., if they saw the name Martinez, nothing wrong, they would perhaps assume he's Latino. So it was important that we had a handsome black face with fight for civil rights and climate justice organizer. There's so many lessons here for the movement. We, we made an experiment. We call it the Channing Martinez for City Council experiment. And we think it exceeded any aspirations and hopes we ever had. But we're not just putting a spin on it. We want to explain to you, and Channing just began, 1,500, I bet we're going to see the precincts in which the votes came in. We hope that they will be overwhelmingly, we wanted people to vote throughout the district, but I think we're going to get a lot of black votes. I think the vast majority will be black, and we hope in certain districts we did a lot better than 5%. So we're going to find all that out. So next week, we have Zach Norris on with his new book, We Make Our Own Safety, and that's a book about uh, different thoughts about the police state and how to deal with it. And then we're also going to have uh, 
I don't know what we're going to have because we may wait one more show and do a whole show on Channing's campaign. I think that's what we want to do. So give us two weeks. We're going to come back with even more voter information, and we're going to it'll sort of be the prelude to a book that we're going to write about lessons from the Channing Martinez campaign for the whole movement. And I want to thank Channing for working 12 to 16 hours a day on his own campaign. Uh, one great thing is, hey, wait, that was 1,583 people applauding. And one great thing is the last day of the campaign, people took down all the signs. And then I call him back, what are you going to do? He says, I already put on 15 new ones. So we learned, okay? <laughs> that was funny because I actually went to the person who took down my signs, I'm not going to say their name, and put a whole line of signs in the site of their office so that every time they leave that day, they can actually see my face. <laughs> Sounds good, my brother. So uh, that's, uh, we just, we're not going to keep calling him Councilman uh, Martinez, but you get it. Okay, so we're going to play some songs because we don't want to, uh, let's see. Yes. Um, and so, so thanks for tuning in today. Again, we are streaming live. This time we're streaming live on YouTube, and you can go to Eric Command Speaks or Voices from the Front Lines on YouTube. And we did a great slideshow um, that you can actually see. And then please definitely, as a reminder, again, write to Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com and tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us, anything us, and we will definitely share it and share it on the next show. Good night, everybody. See you next week. Friends.